Folks, I have a confession to make. Sometimes the hardest thing for a pastor is figuring out what to do next. And um, I know originally my plan was to pivot away in the month of May uh, from the Gospel of Luke to another special topic. And in the end, I just um, felt like the Lord was calling us to stay here. So I hope that's all right. We're gonna you know, ride this out through the month of May and we've got a couple weeks in June before some of our summer schedule starts uh, uh, you know, um, changing and adjusting uh, what we do. But uh, if it's okay, we're going to keep on going from Luke chapter 9 tonight. We're going to be in Luke 9, verse 43. Pastor Brandon's been letting me borrow a couple of his Baker commentaries on the New Testament. He's got uh, those on the Gospel of Luke. There are actually two that are written on Luke since Luke's the longest book in terms of words in the New Testament. Each one of them are about that thick. And it's funny, the dividing line is the passages that we come to tonight. So the first commentary goes through verse 50 of chapter 9, and then, you know, 9:51 through chapter 24 is all in the second commentary. So uh, interestingly enough. So we come tonight to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in verse 43, actually the second half of verse 43. If you have subject headings in your Bible, you might see that verse 43 is a bit divided between the paragraphs. And so we're going to uh, be beginning in sort of the middle of verse 43 tonight. Your heading may begin there as well. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, you just don't get it, do you? Uh, but tonight we'll be looking at a set of passages that sort of might hold that theme. Uh, Jesus is going to say to the disciples, let these words sink in. And as we walk through the passage, we will find that we're not sure those words have sank in, and perhaps they still need to some more. There's a, a gathering of different stories that are connected here. It's unclear whether they are chronologically co connected or simply provided thematically for Luke to drive home several instances where the disciples uh, needed to understand and needed to hear and, and did not. And so we come to uh, passages that if they, if they are chronological, it is almost supernatural because of how they all follow the same theme uh, coming into the, the ending part of the chapter. So chapter 9, verse 43, we're going to begin there. In the ESV, the first line of that heading uh, reads this way, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who's great. John answered, Master, we have someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he, they were Baptists. I don't know if y'all knew that. <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, 
but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Lord, would you speak through your son Jesus tonight to our hearts and our minds and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We, uh, we look at a few passages I mentioned that are connected by the theme of misunderstanding, the theme of what is not totally understood. Uh, before we dive too far into that, let's go ahead and have our, our picture time. And uh, let me show you a few things. Here, here's what foxes look like near Bethlehem. This is uh, not terribly different than the foxes that we have here, but we, we don't have sand foxes. And so they, I guess, are, you know, the Lord created them in such a way to blend in with the sand. And so you see one here. Jesus is going to talk about foxes have holes. This one just decided the middle of the ground was good enough to take a nap. So uh, he did that. Birds of the air, a common you know, trait there with all the caves and with all the clefts in the side of rocks is that you'd often see birds situated in, in places that weren't just treetops. We naturally think of uh, treetops or our, our carports <laughs> where birds love to be. But here's a picture of a, of a bird there. This is a pillow from ancient Egypt. Uh, no place to lay his head. So um, this is available at Bed Bath & Beyond for $29.95. And uh, no, so we don't know fully what the, uh, the ancient Israelites at this time period would have had in terms of places to lay their heads. But you can kind of imagine how many allergens would be uh, inside that thing uh, now after so many years. But even then, the thought of where someone laid his head down at night was, was a big deal. I'll talk more about this in a moment, but as far as burying uh, their dead, ossuary boxes and the, the way in which bodies were dealt with uh, in that day in Israel has, a, has a, something to say into one of the passages that uh, is here. And on one of those ossuary boxes, you can even see scratched on the side, Jesus, son of Joseph. Now, before you get too excited, that's about like in America having something that had Bill, son of Bob, you know, scratched on the side of it. Two very common names. It's almost like... If a thousand years from now, somebody were to come to a cemetery and see George and Martha buried next to each other and assume that must be George and Martha Washington, uh, you know, the names that were very, very common, but this one survives from around the time of Jesus. You know, we, we come to a, a set of passages where Jesus begins by making a really interesting statement. Let these words sink into your ears. And what's interesting is as he starts to speak, excuse me, he says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Son of Man into the hands of men. That there's a distinction there between the kind of man that Jesus is and has come to be, the fulfillment of that Son of Man title that's given even in the Old Testament, and the distinction between that, that when he says that, that is obviously a negative statement. He's not saying I'll be delivered into the hands of men in order to come down on the prices right and win several thousand dollars. You know, this is a negative thing. I'll be delivered into the hands of those who are against me. And then you read verse 45 and it says this, but they did not understand this saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. 
Now, at face value, when we look at this quickly, we say, well, what in the world is going on in this passage? Why would Jesus, the Son of God, say to his disciples, let these words sink in, and yet at the same time, it seems to read that God himself has kept them from being able to fully understand what is there. Is God working against himself? Are they somehow, you know, in in competition with one another or somehow not on the same page? What exactly is going on? Well, the first point that I've got here for you, I think, is how we, we wrestle with this and in our own lives, we see this as well, uh, that sometimes the words of Jesus are meant to sink in, even if we don't yet understand them. Sometimes the words of Jesus are meant to sink in, even if we don't yet understand them. Jesus wants them to remember the words that he's about to say, even though he knows they will not understand those words for some time. You ever had those moments in your life where you go, oh, that's what that was. If you talk to a lot of teenagers and and, and college students who grew up in church, you know, I I found this myself as a student. You you find yourself in your early 20s when when you really are at the height of feeling like you know so much and and you, you might be quick to say, you know, I don't remember anybody saying this to me uh, when I was in church. I don't remember anybody teaching this. And, and then as time went on, one of the things I realized is more than likely it was because I was a poor listener, either because I didn't understand it, I didn't take it in, I was daydreaming about something else, I was talking to my friends. It wasn't that the information wasn't there, it was that I wasn't ready to receive it. And so Jesus, in much the same way, is saying to them, let these words sink in. You're going to want to remember what I'm about to say in parentheses, even if you don't understand it. God kept them from understanding it in one sense because they couldn't understand it, that side of the cross. They couldn't, you know, wrap their brains around what was coming and what all that meant and how their notions of the Messiah were so different than the Bible's notions of the Messiah. And so God holds them back from understanding it until after the resurrection. But even in this moment, Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. Have there been times in your life where you recognized something that's been hidden in my heart, something that's been said to me, some way that the truth of God's been communicated never took root until this later moment. It wasn't until this time that I finally understood what my parents had been saying all this time. It wasn't until this happened that I finally understood the context or the meaning or the application to this verse in my life or this teaching in my life. I didn't truly know how to navigate the Bible's teaching on this until I walked through grief, until I walked through pain, until I walked through, you know, a realization of repentance or whatever it might be. Sometimes what God does is plant in our hearts and lives something that's going to ultimately take its real root later, and that's okay. That's an encouragement to us when we share Christ with those that we love who don't in that moment decide to believe, is that things that sink in, God has a plan for later. God is in the layaway business, if you'll go that far with me, with his truth at times in our hearts and lives, and God's patient, and he's never in a hurry. And sometimes his timing is allowing something to to simmer for a little while. Let this sink in. And yet as we go on, we'll see 
Hopefully that they did uh, in some way let this sink in because afterwards they're able to recall uh, that Jesus had said these things to them, but they didn't understand this saying. It was concealed from them. They were afraid to ask, and then we walk right into the passages where uh, it's not always going so well for how their understanding is being shown. Uh, number two I've got there for you is the, the remainder of the chapter is further evidence of what Jesus' followers don't understand. And that's an encouraging thing for us. It's not just the disciples, it's everybody who's seeking to follow him. And, you know, in comparison with what heaven's truth is, all of us in this room tonight have things we don't understand as well. We have ways that we haven't grasped, that we haven't understood, that we haven't lived out uh, the truth of the Lord and the Lord's still working on us. And so we come to this great question. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. We live in a cultural context now where we've got to be more subtle about this conversation, don't we? We don't quite do it as openly as they did in that day, but I don't know that that means we're better. It just means we're more on guard on and more trying to be sneaky about how we have that conversation. Who's the greatest? Who's done the most? Who's been the best? Who's going to be at the front of the line? If you've ever had a group of students line up, particularly young elementary or preschoolers, to go somewhere, maybe it's to go eat, maybe it's to go wherever they're going, and you line them up, where's every kid want to be? Right at the front of that line. We're all going to the same place. You're going to get there just as fast, but I want to be in front. I want to lead. And we never lose that in some ways. I want to be the greatest. I want to be the best. I want to be first. I want to be the one that everybody likes the most. And so the disciples are having this conversation Verse 47, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Boy, that's a sobering phrase, isn't it? Jesus is never lured by our words if they're in contradiction with our hearts. Knowing the reasoning of their hearts took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who's great. Number three, there's nobody's feet we don't wash. Greatness comes from ministry to those who don't feel great. There's nobody's feet we don't wash. I am convinced that those who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven were people that were barely known, if known at all, here on earth. That for those that we would exalt and to put the highest, we will find that it was those who were the most selfless, the most unknown at times, who were the greatest in God's kingdom. I think about every time that we're gathered together, and even right now, all around this building, there's people who give of their time week after week, month after month, year after year, to children who don't understand the blessing, perhaps, of what that service means. All right now in preschool classes, in the nursery, in Awana, in student ministry, there are people who week after week give of themselves. For each of us in here, there's other ways that God's called us to give of ourselves and to be involved and to take, you know, take in what it means to be selfless. We, we got a chance last week to have our last Tuesday afternoon at Park Place. As many of you know, we've had kids there all year. We've seen folks come to Christ um, from, from just inner city backgrounds, never been involved in church. Some of them having, you know, some difficult living situations. Most of us have been cussed out at some point this year. That's not something most of us are used to. But as we stood there last week for the last time, 
one of the words that came to our hearts were the words of Jesus, whatever you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. That there's nothing that's meaningless or worthless when it's done in the name of what God would have for, for loving, caring, and extending the gospel and love to people. There's nobody's feet we don't wash. You want to be great. You want to be important in God's eyes. Be selfless. Remember the forgotten. Jesus says elsewhere, you know, speaking about the poor and the downcast, many of the same concepts, but ultimately that same truth. Whatever you've done for the least of these, whoever receives this child in my name, whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who's least among you, all is the one who's great. John doesn't come off looking too great in several places in this passage we look at tonight. We go to verse 49 and we read this. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Interesting passage. One of those passages that maybe doesn't get dealt with a lot. When you, when you walk through a book, you're forced to deal with every verse. And so this is one of those that's really interesting. John sees someone who's not a part of their group of disciples casting out demons in Jesus' name. And he says, excuse me, brother. You have not com uh, completed the initiation and pledge to be a part of our club. And without doing that, you are not allowed you know, to do that. Interestingly enough, he goes to Jesus, who he assumes will say, good, I'm glad you kept the walls high for who's allowed to be involved in, uh, in what we do. But Jesus doesn't say that. Verse 50, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, this is sometimes a verse that those who believe in universalism or otherwise will say that somehow Jesus is saying everyone who's not adamantly opposed and explicitly opposed and working against the Lord Jesus is ultimately for Jesus. And so if you don't know, you don't care about God, you're in that camp of just not being opposed, so you must be for Jesus. That's not what Jesus is speaking about here. And you would have a hard time reconciling the rest of the New Testament with that kind of logic. It's just easy to pull this verse out and try to make it say that. Jesus is not saying that. Uh, number four, if I was to summarize what I think the concept of what Jesus is saying is, it's this, we are not the gatekeepers of who belongs to Jesus. We are not the gatekeepers of who belongs to Jesus. We are called to present the gospel and to seek in a church context a gospel standard that honors the Lord, that honors the scripture. We're called to have the principles of scripture govern what we do and not our own feelings and not our own you know, desires. We're called to be people of high principle for the sake of the gospel. And at the same time, we are called to recognize that none of us stand as the middleman between God and humanity. We are not the gatekeepers. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful for that. I don't want to carry that burden. I don't want to have that. You know, even as a pastor, I want to do all that I can to help to show people what it means to know Jesus and to follow him. But I don't want to be the gatekeeper. That's a burden that no human needs. And for any human that wants it, I'm a little nervous to be around them. Y'all know some Baptists who enjoy that gatekeeper side? You know, that's not what God's called us to. Rejoice when you see God working in ways that don't always fit in a tiny box in people's lives. 
Rejoice whenever you see God doing things that you don't always know the start, you don't know the finish, but you can see that he's working. Rejoice when there's people who are able to grow in their faith. And maybe it's in a church context that doesn't look exactly like ours. Maybe it's in a group of people that aren't exactly like ours. But any of you who've ever had kids grow up, some, some of you've walked the road where you're so thankful when, you're, when your child, your adult child, your teenage child connects with a group of believers and you're not as concerned at that point if they look exactly like the believers that you walked with when you were a teenager. You say, Lord, I'm just so thankful that you've brought somebody in the right context, you know, to be here. Be careful about being a gatekeeper. Hold high principles of what it means to follow Christ and yet at the same time extend the reality that Jesus is the one who is working and, and doing the work that lasts and we don't. Be careful about a gatekeeper mindset to say, sorry, unless you're in my group, unless you're in my club, I'm just not sure that that's true, that's real. The club is those who belong to Jesus. You know, when we go to heaven, there won't be denominational distinctions between where we live and what side we stay on. We're just all going to be Jesus's people. We're going to come through those gates and Jesus is going to look down and say, I paid for him. I paid for her. I paid for him. On and on and on. The blood of Jesus is the common denominator, nothing else. Verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, this is an interesting language as well. Luke is already looking ahead, not only to the cross, not only to the resurrection, but the ascension. That at the end of Luke's gospel, he's going to describe the ascension and Jesus being taken up. And he uses that language even here. Most believe that what he's doing is connecting fully the, the concept of just that the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension were all one big event that Jesus did. His ultimate destiny were all of those things. They're one, you know, connected <clears throat> even over 40-some days. This is what God is doing uh, through Christ as one entirely connected event and so when the days drew near for him to move towards that time, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, some of you are thinking, set his face. What in the world does that mean? Does that, you know, some of you set your face in the morning whenever you're, you know, trying to get makeup on or something like that. Maybe you, maybe you set your face when you're trying to take a picture and you're going, okay, I've got to try to stick my chin out as far as I can so it looks as small as it can. And I've got to try to, you know, get me from this side and not this other side. It's none of that kind of thing. Set his face was an idiom that is from Hebrew, really, that made its way into the Greek language here, or the Greek, you know, Luke adapts that Hebrew phrase into the Greek that he uses. It just simply means that he was determined, he set his will, or he, he made it his determined purpose to go to Jerusalem, that Jesus has now moved from not that he ever had popcorn ministry, but he's been going from place to place where now the goal is the final destination and he is moving towards the, the events of the cross and the tomb and the, the ascension. And so uh, Jesus in doing that is going to be going through Samaria and he sends messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. And this is the only time that we see Samaritans mentioned negatively in Luke's gospel. We're going to see the parable of the Good Samaritan in the next chapter. We see uh, a leper who's a Samaritan who comes back and returns and gives thanks 
to Jesus when all the others had, had gone away and, and not returned to give thanks. And you see, you know, several places Samaritans mentioned. We come to John 4 and you got the Samaritan woman at the well who in a different village apparently met with Jesus and then ultimately became the means by which a lot of people in her town came to faith in Christ. But this is another village and that's not what happens here. The people, verse 53, did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now, we don't entirely know what all that may mean, but more than likely what that means is as Jesus came to minister to the Samaritans, they had some questions about, well, if we're going to hear what you're saying is true, you're going to have to follow our preconceived notions, uh, uh, you know, to the point of satisfaction. You might know that Samaritans were people who, by the Jewish people, were seen as only half Jewish. Samaritans actually saw themselves as the true Jews and that the Israelites were not the true Jews because they'd gone off in the exile and then come back. And, you know, so the Samaritans had their own perspective as well. But they worshiped on a place called Mount Gerizim, uh, and there was actually a temple at that location until I believe it was 128 BC when that was destroyed, but that was still the mountain that they worshiped on. The Samaritan woman engages Jesus in that same conversation that you say we ought to worship on this mountain, but we say we worship on that. So that was a big deal to the Samaritans. And so as Jesus is teaching them, inevitably at some point, somebody says, look, I'm gonna put a stop to this right now. Go ahead and tell me what mountain you think we ought to be worshiping on because if you don't tell me the right mountain, I don't want to hear nothing else you got to say. They were from southern Samaria. <laughs> and so Jesus inevitably, according to the passage, you know, I don't know how much he might have focused on the temple, but he did focus on the fact that his mission was ultimately continuing and would be uh, commenced or, or, you know, completed in Jerusalem. And they said, sorry, I don't want to hear that. Whatever else you got to say, I'm not interested if it involves Jerusalem, because we're not Jerusalem people, we're Mount Gerizim people. And it got so rough that James and John ask an interesting question. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Whoo! Now, y'all might have been involved in some church meetings that went south at some point. <laughs> But that was a church meeting that went south. You remember Jesus' uh, name for, uh, for James and John? They were the sons of thunder. And I've often wondered what all that might have meant. I've sort of halfway wondered whether James and John's mother was one of those thunder moms. You know, you know any thunder moms? Uh, but their, their upbringing too thought, you know, um, what would the Old Testament says, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. And I heard Rich Mullins, the music artist, say one time, well, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, but I just want to be about the Lord's business. And uh, James and John were ready to be about the Lord's business. They remembered the story of Elijah from the Old Testament calling down fire from heaven on the enemies of God. And they said, you know what, Jesus, I think it might be time to have an Old Testament experience. And so let's, uh, let me do this. So let me say a few things to make sure I don't skip any lines here. Number five, you know, it's possible for anyone to reject Jesus when he's different than what they want or expect. It's possible for anyone to reject Jesus when he's different than what they want or expect. The Samaritans in that sense were no different than the Jewish people that were there. They were no different than the Arabic peoples who would have been over further uh, 
To the east, they were no different than uh, the Greek-speaking peoples that would have been around the Mediterranean. They were no different to the Egyptians and others in North Africa. They were no different to the people who were out uh, in the woods. Many of our ancestors, somewhere in the forests of Germania and Britain and, and elsewhere, they were no different than the people who were in the Americas. Humanity has a common problem that we have preconceived notions that if we're not careful become barriers to true understanding. And so for the Lord Jesus to enter into our hearts, our worlds, just like anybody else through time or history, regardless of their upbringing, we all have a wall that we can put up to say, look, I'm only interested if it's going to mean this. And we're going to allow Jesus to open that door to have that wall come down. Some of y'all before have gone to, to uh, timeshare presentations. I'm not speaking for or against timeshare. Don't send me emails. Don't come up afterwards. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying some of you might have at some point gotten a free vacation or something. They said, all you got to do is come listen to this presentation. And you have the conversation with your spouse before you go in there and you say, look, I don't care what price they bring out. I don't care what they say. We're saying no. We're not getting it. We're not going to do it. And uh, if different ones of you in here might have found that that kept or at some point maybe the walls got knocked down when, well I didn't know you were going to offer it to me at that price oh okay you, I didn't know kids eat free or you know whatever it might be we have these moments where we say the walls are going to stay up I don't I don't want them coming down and the Samaritans just like the Israelites had that same threshold if, if Jesus doesn't meet my expectations I'm not willing if we're not careful we can do the same thing Jesus I'm only willing to view you if you look enough like my concepts of what you need to be for my desires and my wants. Lord, I'm only willing to surrender to the parts of what you would have me do that match my comfort levels and my, you know, whatever it might be. We all, if we're not careful, can desire someone, something different than the Lord Jesus. But number six, Jesus is patient and merciful. Verse 55, we might not have been terribly surprised if Jesus had looked over and said, yes, I think it's about time, but he doesn't. He turns and not only says we're not going to, but he rebukes the disciples that you shouldn't be thinking along those lines. You know, when people upset you, when they're not interested, when whatever it is that you face that's negative, I think it's a reminder from James and John, we don't need to be quick to say, boy, I just... Can't wait till they get what's coming to them. They deserve to be judged. Well, they deserve whatever they get. They, they, you know, we don't need to be that kind of, those kind of people. But by the grace of God, there go I. That for each one of us, Jesus has stooped down very low to pick us up. So Jesus' patience and mercy should also lead to that as well in our lives. And then we come to the last the fancy seminary word is pericope. That's a group of verses that sort of are a little group unto themselves. We come to the last pericope here, 57 through 62, where some folks come up and ask Jesus about following him and, uh, you know, what that's going to mean. We're very, a lot of us in here are very familiar with these words, and so these are each sort of different conversations that are just summarized very quickly for us. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
I, um, I've gotten a chance at different points in my life to serve in different areas of ministry. I've been a youth pastor and I've led different mission trips and things like that. I, I found out something. As we get older, our comforts get higher. Did y'all know that? You can take a group of middle schoolers somewhere, throw them all in a bunkhouse, only half of them get a bed, and most of them are sleeping on the floor. Two of them aren't even going to have a sleeping bag, and there's a chance one of them's going to roll off during the night and fall eight feet and land on the one that's on the floor. They say, great, 50 bucks, sign me up, I want to go. And then they get older and they say, well, I'm, I'm willing to go in a room if it's only four people to a room, okay? And you get to the point where they're college students, young adults, I'd be willing to go two to a room. I've taken some senior citizens uh, with me on different trips and they've said, look, I'm going to be the only one in my room because so-and-so I know snores and I'm not willing to be in that room with them. You're going to need to get me a room by myself. As time goes on, we say, you know, if I'm going to get through this, my comfort level is going to have to be this or it's going to have to be that. I mentioned Rich Mullins once. He's, he's one of my favorites, but he has a song called Homeless Man about Jesus' ministry and, and just that he didn't have a home. And he says it this way, uh, birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man. Jesus had no home no retirement plan, no special comforts. Many of the things that as we age, we think more and more, I can't even survive without these things. And so when someone says, Jesus, I wanna follow you, he essentially says, are you willing to not even have a pillow? You willing to be under the stars? You willing to not know where you're going the next day, what you're gonna eat, what that's gonna look like? There's three little many bullets underneath this number seven. What cost are we willing to pay to follow Jesus? You know, we see in this conversation, the first thing that Jesus confronts, letter A, is our comfort. Our comfort. There are some who believe even that this fox and bird language is used to represent because each of these animals were representative or used in the same way that the United States uses a bald eagle. Uh, there were ways in which the Roman Empire and the Jewish elites used these images as well. And so for Jesus to say, look, here's these people of power over here. You go over there with them, you'll have a bed, you'll have a place to lay your head, you'll have a den, but you come with me and I can't promise you anything. The pay package is not very good. What is our comfort willingness to follow Jesus? How comfortable do we have to be? The second person says, follow, uh, Jesus says, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now we look at this and we think, goodness gracious, Lord, can we not just you know, we've got to bury a body. What, what's being said? Well, it, it's important for us to understand the cultural context here too. Uh, most believe that Jesus is, or the, this man is speaking about one of two things. The first of which, which is a second burial. And what would happen is that 
bodies would be placed in caves in order to decompose for a year before the bones were taken and placed in what are called ossuary boxes, which are here. And their remains would then be transferred into put somewhere else. And so the, the funeral concept, the idea of caretaking for the dead was a longer stretch. In addition to that, even if it was this, what we think of as a standard first-time funeral, often the ceremonial side of that could last for weeks. And so for someone to say, first, let me go bury my father, what they may be saying to Jesus is, let me go take an immeasurable amount of time and I'll come back to you. You ever had somebody say, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that. We'll, we'll do that soon. And next Christmas you're saying, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that. Or every time you see that one friend at the funeral home, you say, you know, we got to stop getting together just like this. We're going to get together otherwise. But the years go by and the years go by. Now, all of us have been guilty of those kind of things in some way, shape, or form. But perhaps what this man is doing is giving lip service to Jesus and the kind of request he is making is sizable enough to where Jesus says, look, there's enough folks to take care of all this ceremonial side of what's taking place. Follow me. Come with me. Don't worry about the ceremony and the expectations of others. The second point that's there is letting go. What cost are we willing to pay to follow Jesus? Are we willing to let go? Are we willing to lay aside the things that we think, well, this is what we've got to do. We've got to do this. We got, you know, I can't, can't possibly give up this or I've got to have my focus here for so long and in this way. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I think I may have told y'all that story some weeks ago, about months ago, I think, of the time I mowed the, the grass at our house and didn't turn the blade on. Y'all remember that? Self-propelled mower that I turned the drive on, but not the blade. All those wheel runs in the in the yard looked real great, but at the end of everything, I hadn't looked forward enough to realize there was no grass spitting out of the side of the mower and there was no, it wasn't getting lower as I went by. I just was going through the motions and just kept going. Y'all pray for my dad. He's still, still dealing with that. And, uh, <laughs> and so the last line that's on your sheet tonight, what cost are you willing to pay to follow Jesus? Are you willing to pay the cost of looking back? You know, often what's behind us is the biggest challenge to what lies ahead of us. And if we're not careful, we just can't let go. We can't leave things to, to the Lord. Churches become places just like everywhere else in our society. I find myself as I get older, I'm more nostalgic and I want to look backwards in different ways. And there's a place for that. But if we're not careful, the past starts to get in the way of our future. Jesus says, you know, don't put your hand to the plow and look backwards because you're just going to make an awful mess of where you're about to go if you're not looking at where you're going. You know, a couple of illustrations and then we close tonight. You know, when Jesus is speaking about the least of these and the focus on being the greatest in God's eyes versus man's eyes, there were two boys that were born in Yorkshire, England during the early 1800s. They were two sons, the last name Taylor and the oldest one of them decided to make a name for himself by entering parliament and gaining public prestige. The younger son chose to give his life to Christ and began a path that he figured would lead to obscurity. And before long, he was on the mission field in Asia. 
And with that commitment, a young man named Hudson Taylor turned his face toward China and obscurity. And as a result, now he's known and honored on every continent as a faithful missionary and a founder of the China Inland Mission. But for the other son, however, there's no lasting monument. He became known simply as the brother of Hudson Taylor. Now that happened on this side of heaven for a great many people. It won't be until heaven that what they've done for the Lord will be seen and known and celebrated. But if we're going to please someone, it's a reminder for us we need to have the desire to please the Lord Jesus above all else. And then these last three folks who come up to Jesus and are ready to follow him and they've each got their own excuse And in the end, Jesus calls on them to finish what they started and to keep going. Our Daily Bread shares an illustration about a child who was drawing in another room in his home back in the time period where there were pens and then there were ink bottles, you know, where you dip that pen in the ink and you write for a little bit and then you have to come back and dip it again. And so he's got this bottle full of black ink there beside him. And he started drawing a picture using a fountain pen. And he was one of those kids that never quite got all the way done with anything he was doing. If I was to have my four children sit down and draw a picture, it'd be a very different experience for each one of them. My oldest daughter sits down and she will, like, you know, Michelangelo, just complete a work of art that, that, you know, amazes me. And she might work on that for hours. My son Brantley, who is five years old, will take a pen, scribble it back and forth four or five times with no attempt to draw any semblance of anything. He'll just call the same scribble something completely different as compared to what's on his mind. Uh, Some of my other children will start, but they don't usually finish whatever they're doing. Sooner or later, they get distracted and want to go somewhere else. And this young man, with his ink bottle and his fountain pen, drew a little while. He had a dog that was there and he got to where he was kind of ready to get up and to be done. And his mother came over and looked at the picture and said, um, well, this is a nice looking dog, son, but where's his tail? And the young boy said, it's still in the bottle. You know, I think the challenge of the Lord Jesus in our hearts and our lives is to not leave things in the bottle. That for us, we need to take up the work that he's called us to. To do that faithfully, not for the praise of other people, but so that heaven would be proud and would be served at at where we would seek to follow the Lord. And in that, that at the end, we aren't able to stand with a bunch of other things and simply have the important ink still in the bottle. Father, thank you for your word and your truth that challenges each one of our hearts. So, Lord, may we not put our hand to the plow and look back. May we not be chasing excuses or other things. May we not be the kind of people who want to exalt ourselves. But, Lord, will you help us to wash everyone's feet? Will you help us to have the patience and mercy of Jesus with others? And Lord, will you call us to not only hear and to not only let words sink in, but Father, would you help us to understand and to know? And will you continue to complete the good work in us that you have been faithful to start and will be faithful to finish in Christ? Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.